On July 30, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa went to meet somebody in the parking lot of a suburban Detroit restaurant and was never seen again. Hoffa had once been one of the most powerful union bosses in the country, the former leader of the Teamsters, and his disappearance and presumed murder prompted a massive nationwide FBI investigation that lasted for decades and was never resolved. Now, a new book sheds startling light on the case. It was written by an author with the most improbable of windows into what may have happened. Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard Law School professor and former top Justice Department official whose stepfather was for years the FBI's chief suspect in the case, Hoffa's longtime right-hand man, Chucky O'Brien. Goldsmith's book is a sweeping story that encompasses Hoffa's rise to power, his bitter feud with Bobby Kennedy, and his ties to the mafia bosses across the country. But most of all, it is a tale of Goldsmith's up-and-down relationship with O'Brien, an enigmatic figure the author called Dad. We'll talk to Goldsmith and explore the still lingering mysteries about Hoffa's disappearance on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We are now joined by Jack Goldsmith, professor of law at Harvard University, former assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, and the author of In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. Jack, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So I got to say, um, there are not a lot of books that blow me away when I read them, but yours certainly did. I've known you for years in your many uh, iterations at Harvard and before that at Justice, but I had no idea that your stepfather was Chucky O'Brien, the chief suspect in the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. Yes, he was. He became my stepfather when I was 12 years old. He married my mom six weeks before Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. I didn't have any idea who Jimmy Hoffa was when, when he came into my life. He had been kind of hanging around for three or four months. He and I were very, very close. We'd grown very close in the few months before the Hoffa disappearance. And then suddenly, on July 30th, 1975, this thing happened, and it just enveloped our lives. So because our audience may not remember or have read about some of the many characters in the book, let's just sort of take some time and uh, you know go through it. Who was Jimmy Hoffa, and why was he such an important, influential figure in the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s? Right. So Hoffa was the best-known and most consequential labor leader, in, as you say, in the 1950s and 60s. And unlike today, this is a time when labor unions were very important and very powerful. He led – he was the president of the Teamsters Union for a decade starting in 1957. But for a decade before that, he was from Detroit, had built a power base in the middle of the country. He was a truly brilliant labor organizer, labor bargainer, and labor leader – 
He brought many hundreds of thousands of people from the lower classes to the middle classes and with much better benefits. He was widely, widely admired by people in the union. That was the, the good side of Jimmy Hoffa, and he, it was a great side. The other side of Jimmy Hoffa he, is that he was corrupt by any measure. He didn't much care about the law, and he basically viewed the law as just something to get around when he wanted to achieve something. He had criminal associations going back to his earliest days in labor, including really starting in the 1940s with organized crime, first in Detroit and then around the country. Some of his arrangements with organized crime were kind of necessary adjustments due to the fact that the mob controlled the unions he was trying to reach in various parts of the country, and other parts of it had to do with his the extensive loans he gave from the Teamsters Pension Fund to basically finance mob projects, most famously Jack, in Las Vegas. Before we go on to some of the other characters, I just want to dig in a little bit deeper on Hoffa because corrupt, uh, ties to organized crime, but it seems to me that you make the case in your book that unlike other uh, corrupt labor leaders who were stealing from the pension funds, living high off the hog, Hoffa actually was driven by power, I'm sure, but also uh, wanting to help working Americans. Absolutely. So he was getting his piece on the loans. He was getting he was getting side deals on everything that was involved. He had, uh, my stepfather Chuck, he estimates many tens of millions of dollars in cash stored in a lot of places, and, and I'm sure he's right about that. But you're right. He did not live a fancy life. He spent literally all of his waking hours, seven days a week, literally working on the union and he used that money, as you say, to enhance his power, but also to enhance the power of the union. He was, whether it was buying off politicians or buying off judges or paying someone to help him win a labor contract or whatever it took, he was not using that money. When I said corrupt, I said conventional corruption. Objectively, he was breaking the law all over the place. And paradoxically, he, he had a kind of a strict personal moral code. He was highly moralistic. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't gamble, and he didn't like people who did. But I, I got to say, using the Teamster Pension Fund to dole out loans to mobsters to finance Las Vegas casinos, you know, that sounds pretty corrupt to me. And you just wonder, I mean, were, were Teamster members who were so loyal to him, were they even aware of this? And when it became public, you know, were they outraged? Yes, there's a there's a story by A.H. Raskin, who was the longtime well-regarded labor reporter for the New York Times. And at the height of the McClellan Committee stuff uh, in the late 50s, when Bobby Kennedy was really going after Hoffa and basically exposing a lot of this stuff, Raskin went to Local 299 in Detroit and he wrote this big story. He basically interviewed a couple of hundred people. And he said all but two said, we don't care about that stuff. We love Hoffa because he's done so much for us. And the story I kept coming across over and over in my research was that members would say, yeah, we know he's getting some on the side, but we don't care because he's with us and he's helping us and he can do whatever he wants with that stuff. So let's talk about Bobby Kennedy because he plays such an important role in this story. He's at that point, his brother, John Kennedy, is the senator from Massachusetts. He's the chief counsel to this Senate committee, the McClellan committee, investigating corruption in the unions. And he hates Hoffa. He develops a vendetta and wants to get him at all costs. Tell us the story of how that developed, his animosity to Hoffa, and how that extended all the way into 
when he becomes attorney general sure. in the Justice Department. And by the way, Hoffa hated him just as much back. Right. So Bobby Kennedy was barely out of law school. He was in his 30s when he got a job as the chief investigator for this committee that was looking into labor racketeering. And it was actually Bobby's idea. And he kind of he was looking for a cause. He was influenced by the Kefauver Commission in the early 50s, which had had elevated him to the vice presidential candidate in the 1956 election. I think that's right. Yeah. Anyway, Bobby had seen how that type of hearing could raise the profile. He wanted to raise his brother's profile. He wanted to raise his own profile. He was looking around for an issue and he stumbled onto labor racketeering. And once he saw, found it and once he discovered Hoffa and what he was about, he immediately became attracted to it because Kennedy was a highly moralistic guy. He, from the beginning, thought Hoffa was this evil guy, unambiguously evil. He never saw the good side of Hoffa that we just discussed. So they started going after each other even before the hearings began in early 1957. They were at a dinner together that was arranged for them to meet one another, and they took an immediate dislike to one another. Uh, each, each one of them, Hoffa represented the things that Bobby hated most, you know, corruption, un- lack of education, a criminal. And, and Hoffa thought that Bobby was everything he hated most, rich, uneducated, overeducated, mm-hmm. never dirtied his hands. And it really made him mad because Bobby's Kennedy was a booze guy, as Hoffa would say. So he thought he was hypocritical on top of it. And Bobby went after him hard early on in, the, in, in these hearings, these very famous hearings in the 50s. And for, for years, he went after Hoffa in these hearings, and he really broke every rule in the book in terms of congressional hearings, and he, but he wasn't able to put Hoffa away. What were the rules in the book that Bobby Kennedy broke when he was investigating Jimmy Some of them Hoffa? were legal rules. Some of them were ethical rules. So, for example, he would... You don't see this anymore. He went when these when the Hoffa did not take the fifth. He was one of the few people who didn't take the fifth, but everybody else took the fifth. And by the way, Hoffa advised them all to take the fifth, especially the Teamsters. And Kennedy would literally make fun of them for taking the fifth. He would call them babies and wimps and things like that for taking the fifth. So he was kind of abusing their invocation of, of their constitutional rights. He was in bed with journalists, leaking stories to the journalists that were, loved Bobby even then. And, of course, he hated the Teamsters, hated the mob. Right. So he was leaking in advance what he was going to prove and it, in, you know, in a way that, that seemed wrong at the time. He was abusing the tax process. He was looking through tax records in a way he wasn't supposed to. And one time he leaked it in violation of a relevant criminal law. He was pretty much out of control. Now... Hoffa was a bad guy, and the teachers were bad guys, so right. there were two sides. I'm not saying that this wasn't something to go after, but Bobby was sure of his cause, both in the 50s and then when he became attorney general, and he well, didn't care about the rules. I want to pick up on that, because you write about once he becomes attorney general, RFK is abusing the uh, surveillance uh, powers of the Justice Department and, and the FBI, spying on Americans, and you raise... The point that the problem in our law enforcement system is when you investigate the man, not the crime, and that that's what he was doing. But what I want to ask you about, and I said this to you before the show started, the book is brilliant on many different levels. And one is your own personal involvement in this story. And I want you to talk about how Chuck O'Brien's story intersects with your personal story, your professional story at the Justice Department, and that gets into this whole question of surveillance. Right. So when I was a kid, a teenager, still under Chucky's influence completely, he would always rail against Bobby Kennedy. He hated Bobby Kennedy. 
and he would tell me that Kennedy, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time, that Kennedy went after him and did all these illegal things to him in the 50s and 60s, that he was doing illegal surveillance, that he was breaking the law but getting away with it. He called it backup. And Chucky, for Chucky, what backup meant was that when the government investigates you for violating a law, that they violate the law themselves and no one cares because it's the government and no one's going to enforce the law against them. And he also told me that there was all this illegal surveillance against him and that there was a, what he called a famous Supreme Court case in which he won, he said. I didn't take this seriously as a teenager. I remember it. And I didn't take it seriously when I went to law school, and I didn't pursue it. But I did stumble upon it when I was working in the Justice Department as, he's, as the head of OLC. I was working on the Stellar Wind program. And in connection with that, and this is, this is how I first stumbled on to, to, to this entire episode, I was reading Fourth Amendment cases to try to get up to speed on the Fourth Amendment because I knew the something. Stellar Wind program being the this Bush is, Justice Department's domestic yeah, wiretapping yeah, program. Right. And this thing fell in my lap, and it was my job to I – mean, the head of OLC had to uh, approve the program's legality every six weeks, and it had a lot of problems. And I was trying to figure out the problems and what I could do to save the program, if anything. And in the middle of doing that, I was reading these Fourth Amendment cases, and I was reading a famous case in the late 60s, and I came across two citations. One was O'Brien versus United States, and the other one was Hoffa versus the United States. This was a very stressful period of my life uh, when I was doing this, and I was just shocked when I saw that. And I looked, I printed the cases out, and I read them. They were cases about Hoffa and O'Brien and my stepfather, and they did involve illegal surveillance uh, especially if Chucky, it was clear in his case, by, during, by the Kennedy Justice Department and FBI in the early 60s. There was a case where Chucky, the Supreme Court, ruled that they had illegally surveilled him in violation of his right to counsel because they, they listened in on a, to a conversation with his lawyer, and the Supreme Court vacated the conviction. So when I read this in the middle of doing my own work on Stellar Wind, it was discombobulating for a lot of reasons. First of all, I was shocked that Chucky was right about that. He was in, in, in the large right about that. Second of all, it, it, it first pointed me to this whole world of really massive illegal surveillance that was going on in the 50s and 60s, especially with regard to microphones as opposed to wiretapping. It was clear in the microphone case. Third of all... And, and the, micro, the, the, the bugs in the microphone case were, as you explain in the book, were more egregious because that involved, basically, they were black bag jobs where the FBI would illegally, without warrants, enter somebody's home and plant, yes. or offices, and plant bugs yes. in their office. They would actually have to break into the home to plant the bugs. They needed to do that. And, and they were doing that for years under J. Edgar Hoover. Under J. Edgar Hoover, approved by one of the interesting things that I discovered was approved by the Justice Department with these awful opinions, these really conclusory, not really serious legal opinions that basically blessed this. Also, the Supreme Court, starting really in the 40s, but in the 50s and 60s, made it very clear that this was illegal. And with the Justice Department's blessing, Hoover just kept doing it until it became public in the 19. In the middle of the 60s. I, I think we should emphasize that you're discovering this at exactly the same time that you were reviewing Justice Department legal opinions authorizing the uh, torture program and warrantless wiretapping, which were also not on really solid <laughs> yeah. legal foundations. And, and yes, and to make a long story short, it became it wasn't crystal clear to me when I was in the Justice Department, but it, it started to crystallize then. It became much clearer later when I was talking to Chucky and researching the book. 
This was basically what I was experiencing with Justice Department opinions that were opportunistic, to put it mildly, in justifying a secret surveillance program was exactly what Chucky was complaining about correctly, it turned out, as I discovered, in, in, in incredible detail, as I discovered, was going on in the 50s and 60s and really going back before that. So, you know, I was in the middle of something that was very much like what he described the Justice Department had been doing for a long time, and it really hit home to me. And there's another very kind of moving, another very moving uh, dimension to this story, which is you had been estranged from your stepfather when you were younger, but I think already maybe going to college, you were learning and uh, about Chucky's involvement in, in criminal activities and, and corruption, and you didn't approve of it. It was embarrassing to you. You were also eventually rising up in your career, and so you stopped talking to him. Basically, we were very close when I was in high school. When I went to college and law school, I began to grow apart from him, and I basically blew him off. I just decided that for a whole bunch of reasons, including my career, not to put too fine a point on it, that I needed to separate myself from him. Because this was a guy who, he did have serious mob associations. He was a guy who committed a lot of crimes. He was the leading suspect in the Hoffa disappearance. And I was partly worried about my career, partly worried about my safety, and partly I just grew to think it's not something I admire. So I blew him off. And then we reconciled, as you're suggesting, after I left the Justice Department. And the process that first began me to reconsider him was when I discovered, literally, literally when I discovered this O'Brien versus United States citation in the middle of Stellar Wind. And then the very stressful episodes I went through in the government, really stressful. I thought about Chucky the whole time. It's not like I changed my ideas on the, on the dime. But when I got out, and I would just view the world differently, frankly. And over the next six months, I thought about a whole lot of things. And I eventually asked him for forgiveness for basically blowing him off with no great reason. He was a wonderful father to me for blowing him off for 20 years. And he accepted me back into his life without question. And we've been very close ever since. Can you just very uh, briefly explain why that period was so stressful for you? <laughs> And in particular, what a man named David Addington said to sure. you at that time. Oh, do we, are we going to dredge up that old quote? I guess I, well, I guess you I, did. I, I guess I used it in the book. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, yeah. So, look, it was – I came upon especially the warrantless wiretapping stuff and the um, interrogation and black site stuff in the middle. It had been going on for a couple of years. It had been all legally vetted. It had been all legally approved. And there was no one there, – there were some people that were questioning the warrantless wiretapping stuff. There was no one questioning the other – the interrogation stuff. And I got there, and not just on my own with the help of others, it became very apparent that these things were very deeply legally flawed. Now, they also were deemed to be the two most important intelligence programs going on in the government that were absolutely vital to keeping al-Qaeda at bay and to keeping the country safe. So when I started to question the legal basis for it, you can imagine the anger and disruption and concern it caused in the government. You're referring to a quotation from David Addington, who was the vice president's counsel, Cheney's counsel. And basically, when I first let him know about what we had concluded about the warrantless wiretapping program, he said something to the effect of, if you rule that way, you'll have the blood of the 100,000 people who die in the next attack on your hands. Now, let me say, I don't think David was... I don't. David was being candid. That's the way he saw the world. He wasn't actually. This is something that people don't understand about. Him. He wasn't trying to pressure me. He was describing reality as he saw it. Frankly, he didn't have to say that. 
for me to understand that those were the stakes. That's the way we saw the stakes. That's why it was so stressful. There are so many roads we can go down <laughs> with this uh, interview, but I should point out just to buttonhole this that um, in spite of Addington's quote, you stood your ground. You said that these that the warrantless wiretapping program was not legally justified in part in part in part and it led to a big blow up in which a number of top then justice department officials backed you up threatened to resign led by james comey who was the deputy attorney general at the time and robert Mueller, who was the director of the fbi Correct. Um, That's exactly right. Names that um, we are well familiar with today. They're but, even more famous now than they were. <laughs> right. Um, let's get back to the Hoffa story. Okay. Because the Kennedy Justice Department goes after him relentlessly, indicts him multiple times. Kennedy is, uh, of course, assassinated in 1968, but Hoffa is, by that point, already convicted. He's been He's in convicted. jail by that in prison. Point. He went yeah, to yeah. prison in 67. In, in 67. And... Richard Nixon becomes president, 1969. Hoffa wants out of jail. And you tell this fascinating story about an apparent payoff delivered by none other than your stepfather, Chucky O'Brien, from the mob to some unidentified person at the Madison Hotel in Washington. But you leave the strong impression this was a payoff to the Nixon White House oh, yeah. to get Hoffa out of jail. Yeah, and by the way, it wasn't from the mob. It was Hoffa's cash. It was, was Hoffa's cash. That was one of the things that... So let me just tell the story, and I'll tell you right. why I included it in the book. Um, so there have been long been rumors, and a lot of people have claimed that there were payoffs, and a lot of people have claimed they made the payoff to someone in the Nixon administration, and there are about eight different versions of this story, to get Hoffa out of jail or to put, impose the condition on Hoffa or to keep Hoffa in jail. There are all these rumors. As I talk about in the book, the White House, the, the Hoffa, when Hoffa died, the Hoffa investigators drilled this to the ground. The Watergate investigators drilled this to the ground. They couldn't figure out where this rumor came from or what the basis for it was financially, we, where the money came from. So Chucky told me, and it's one of the stories that he told me over seven years, and I got to, I got pretty good at telling when he was telling the truth and when not. He basically told me in it several times in exactly the same way of the time when Frank Fitzsimmons, who was the president of the Teamsters. And succeeded Hoffa. Who succeeded Hoffa. Hoffa had put him there. Basically, and it was under enormous pressure. And I talk in, the chapter, I think, is one of the most amazing in the book for what I dug up in the Nixon archives. And the machinations, the, the Nixon White House was brilliant and brilliantly corrupt in getting maximum leverage in terms of finance and political help in exchange for doling out legal favors, basically pardons and non-prosecutions and things like that. In any event, Chucky claims, and I believe him, that he picked up this uh, large briefcase that he said had a million dollars in it from Fitzsimmons' office and two hours later took it to the Madison Hotel to the fifth floor. And the guy opened the door and he said he put it in there and walked away. And I wasn't sure whether, whether to include this in the book. I, there were a lot of things I didn't include in the book because I just wasn't sure that they were credible. And I tried to corroborate everything one way or another. I eventually included this story because I believed it, because there were little tidbits of corroboration in terms of the timing when Chucky said it happened, in terms of him saying that the money came from Hoffa. There was an informant who had said the same thing in a way that Chucky didn't know. But the thing that really made me believe it was when he regretted telling me about it. One of the things Chucky struggled with in our 
seven years of conversations was talking about things that he did that were illegal or things he thought he wasn't supposed to talk about. And this wasn't a, what he would call a Sicilian secret. This wasn't something that Omerta covered because it was about Hoffa. But one day after we were discussing this, he got really upset when he told me this story like for the 13th time. He got really upset, and he got upset because it became clear he thought he had told me a secret he wasn't supposed to. He said he wished that Uncle Tony, Anthony Giacalone, who was his kind of consigliere on these things, so to speak, he said he wished he were there so he could ask him about it. And when he came deeply to regret it in an extremely genuine way is when I really thought, yeah, he's telling me the truth. Well, now, the, the sort of backdrop to this and that gives it some you know, sense of um, reality is from the Nixon tapes, uh, which you quote liberally from, it's clear that the Nixon White House knows that Fitzsimmons, who's succeeded Hoffa, does want Hoffa out of jail because yep. his members want that, yep. right? That's something he could deliver. That's a deliverable, yes. to coin a phrase, he can provide for the Teamster members. But he doesn't want Hoffa to return to the Teamsters, Teamsters right? because he's liking his life, you know, playing golf. A, 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 as is the, the, as does the Nixon administration, because yeah. Fitzsimmons is completely in the bag for them and mm -hmm. delivering a lot of money and a lot of political support. So it was both the Nixon White House and Hoffa's successor, Fitzsimmons, who wanted – they both wanted Nixon out, but they didn't want him to back in the union. Right, and, and Fitzsimmons and got, got the Teamsters to endorse Nixon for re-election in – Which is pretty extraordinary. Right, pretty extraordinary. to have a union, yeah, a, a major big, union. The biggest union in the country. Right. So the Nixon White House is trying to placate Fitzsimmons, but they want to put restrictions on getting Hoffa out of jail. They'll commute the sentence – but with a condition. The condition is that he can't return to labor as a leader in the labor movement until 1980, which was basically Hoffa viewed a death sentence. This was 1971. He was, I think, in his 60s by then, mm -hmm. almost 60. It would, have been, it, would have been, it would have basically meant 10 more years with him right. not being in the union, which Nixon thought was plenty of time for him to get all the benefit he needed out of Fitzsimmons. Right. So there was this condition. It, it took on – by the way, the condition – there are so many characters that yeah. we've heard of before in the book was actually the, the idea of John Dean. The Mick Nixon White House had been trying to figure out how to do this in a lawful way, and they had all sorts of theories. But it was actually Dean who came to, who wasn't involved in the corrupt part of this thing, but he was the person in the White House counsel who was in charge of pardons. And he talked to the pardon attorney and said, why don't we just put a condition on it? Right. And so it was John Dean who came up with the idea. And when it was the condition that in a very indirect way led to Hoffa's killing, I believe, because when Hoffa gets out of jail in 71, he's desperate to get his union back. Right. It was his whole life. He wanted it back. He hated Fitzsimmons, who double-crossed him, but he couldn't get it back because of this condition. And he tried every trick he thought of. He brought a lawsuit. He tried to pay everybody off. He tried to pay off the board of paroles. He couldn't get rid of the condition. And when he realized, I'm jumping ahead in the story, but when he realized he couldn't get rid of this condition that Nixon imposed to kind of placate Fitzsimmons... He eventually just kind of, I think, lost his mind, and he started saying, threatening to expose. Well, he was to, to, to expose, expose La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, right. And, and Fitzsimmons' ties to ties the, to the Fitzsimmons mob. ties to the Basically, Hoffa knew everything, right? Right. He was involved in this stuff, and he basically knew all the secrets about the mob and the union, and he said he's going to expose it all. And, you know, I asked Chucky, you know, was he crazy? Didn't he know the consequences? Chucky says... He just hated Fitzsimmons so much he was being irrational. I think it's pretty clear from the context that he was 
going to bring himself down and everybody else down, too. So it was a kind of a suicide mission. I think so. By the way, as a constitutional law professor, Hoffa was challenging the conditions put on the uh, commutation of sentence. Did he have an argument or did, mm-hmm. did was the Nixon White House John Dean arranged uh, commutation with conditions? Was that constitutional? So Leonard Boudin was Nixon's lawyer. And he he actually Nixon. You mean? Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. Leonard Boudin was Hoffa's lawyer in this case. They a, sued a famed radical lawyer. Exactly. Or, you know, right. And they sued the the Justice Department and Nixon. So the law was definitely on the government side. And the, I the memo. I have the OLC memo, and there was an OLC memo. There was the pardon attorney's memo. There's a lot of precedent for this kind of thing. Boudin actually made some brilliant arguments, but he lost in the district court. I tried very hard. The case had been argued mm-hmm. in the Court of Appeals. Nixon was telling everyone he was going to win and that the attorney general was going to pardon him. All of these things were lies. Part of to scare the mob that he was coming Hoffa back. Was Hoffa was I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah. Hoffa was telling that right. everyone that he was going to win this case. We don't know what they would have done because after he died, the case went away. I actually tried to talk to all the judges and their clerks. I really tried to figure out what the court right. was going to rule. It's pretty clear that Hoffa was not going to win, yeah. Yeah. that he was going to, not going to be able to get back into labor. So, Jack, we want to get into Hoffa's disappearance, why uh, Chucky was uh, the lead suspect, and what you learned and what you think really happened. But before we do that, I want you to talk about one of the people in your book who I think is really one of the most fascinating characters in the whole book, and that's Sylvia Pagano. Who's Sylvia Pagano? Sylvia Pagano was Chucky's mom. She uh, was from Kansas City, which is where, where Chucky was born. She was basically in the in the family that was the Detroit crime. Excuse me, the Kansas City crime family. She grew up in the Sicilian neighborhood. She knew all the top guys in Kansas City. Her grandfather was an old timer in Kansas City. So, and she was this incredibly charming, hardworking, forceful, and opportunistic woman. Chucky's father left through mysterious circumstances, and she moves to Detroit when Chucky's six years old, where she becomes very tight with. She got her first job through the Kansas City family with the leaders of the Detroit crime family. And then she becomes close friends with all of them. She also becomes close with Jimmy Hoffa. And she is actually the person who introduced Hoffa to the the Italian syndicate. I, I try to pinpoint the date and the episode in 1941. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And she was also a go-between for decades between Hoffa and the mob. Uh, some of these illegal surveillance tapes in the 60s make quite clear in some of these conversations how vitally consequential Sylvia was to get convincing Hoffa to make these loans to the mob. So she was very consequential. She was also a labor organizer in the early years. She was very consequential in influencing Hoffa. She took care of Hoffa's wife and she helped raise his children. She was also, and she was a go-between with the mob, and not just in Detroit. She introduced Hoffa to Anthony Provenzano in New Jersey. Tony Pro. Tony Pro. And so she was this remarkable woman in an era when there weren't a lot of women who were kind of hanging out on the edges of, of the outfit, as Chucky calls them. Just this incredibly forceful, hard-nosed. But, but you, you also learn you know, much later on that she and Tony Jack alone actually steal from Hoffa, right? Yep. They actually go into his safe and steal money, and that was devastating to, to, Chucky. Uh, to Chucky. Yeah. So I learned a lot of things. I got all the transcripts from these illegal bugs from the government. 
and I learned a lot. It was, I mean, it was really amazing background and kind of filling in the, these characters. Were those all in in FBI uh, they're now, files that have been? They're um, now all available on the web if you know yeah, where to look. Yeah. But FBI Vault. No, it's Mary Farrell Foundation. Do you know what that is? Mary Farrell Foundation is this amazing organization that collects stuff related to the assassinations originally, JFK, RFK, MLK. And it turns out that all these bugs were collected, all these transcripts were collected as part of the House investigation into the Kennedy assassination in the 80s. And they made their way from there somehow or another to the Mary Farrell Foundation where you can download them now if you know where to look. So anyway, uh, yes. So among the other stories that these transcripts tell is that I'll try to be brief, but Sylvia was, in addition to being the go-between between Hoffa and the mob for the loans, was also the main caretaker for Hoffa's wife, Josephine, who was very sick, mentally, mental health issues and physical uh, health issues. And over time, Sylvia, who really loved, I think loved Josephine, also grew extremely frustrated. She was basically... This woman was dumped in her lap, and Hoffa was so busy that he wasn't. Sylvia became angry about the relationship. And yes, at one point, this is all laid out on the um, on the transcripts. First of all, I mean, Josephine was having an affair with a Detroit low-level mob mob member. This all be- Josephine Hoffa was. This all becomes clear on the tapes. It caused a bit of a riff in the Detroit family. It also becomes clear that the Jackalones, Anthony, and his brother Vito were, with Sylvia's help, tried several times to rob Hoffa's home. One in uh, Washington, he had a little apartment in Miami, and they finally succeeded in breaking into the Miami apartment. So, And Chucky was, of course, in the middle of all this because he was very close to Hoffa, very close to his mom, very close to Jackaloni. And it was the first time that he had ever, these twin loyalties he had towards the mob and towards Hoffa came into conflict, and he hated it. Mm. And the next time that happened was during the disappearance. All right. So let's get to the disappearance. Uh, as as we were discussing, Hoffa gets out of jail after this presumed payoff that Chucky delivered. And um, when he can't get back into his old Teamster role, uh, role, he turns on Frank Fitzsimmons, who had succeeded him, uh, and begins to talk about his ties, to Fitzsimmons' ties to the mob, which pisses off Fitzsimmons and the various mobsters who yeah, were It was really the mobsters. I mean, Fitzsimmons was a weak sister. He wasn't going yeah. to do anything to Jimmy Hoffa. Right. The real danger, it wasn't, and it wasn't just the Detroit mob. It was the entire country. I mean, right. I try to explain, this is some of the news in the book about the Hoffa disappearance, at least the early parts. Yeah. It, this was a huge deal around the country. The entire leadership of the Italian syndicate across the country, their heads were on fire. And they didn't know what to do. And so, yes, they were going crazy because they thought Hoffa was basically talking to the government or threatening to about all these relationships. So let's get to the disappearance and the connection between the mob getting pissed off about what Hoffa is saying and the events in which he is presumably murdered. So it's August 30th of 1975. Hoffa was supposed to have a meeting at the, a restaurant called the Maka's Red Fox in a, in a suburb of Detroit. And he thinks he's going to have a meeting with this man, Anthony Giacalone, who was, along with Hoffa, Chucky's other father figure. Why is he meeting with him? We don't really know why he's meeting with him. Giacalone has been for months, much more than has been known until, until I wrote this book, for months Giacalone has been talking to Hoffa to try to get him to calm down. 
And he wasn't threatening him with anything, but he was trying to assuage him. So the last time they had met was the Saturday before this Wednesday meeting, and there was a note that Hoffa had left in his house meeting Tony Jack, TG, at the Magnus Red Fox. It was speculated that this was some kind of a climactic meeting in which Hoffa thought his threats were finally going to work and he was going to receive the blessing of the the mob to basically get his job back if he could get out from underneath his condition. It's speculated that that's what was going to happen in this meeting, and that's what Chucky thinks was going to happen in this meeting. He basically said that Hoffa wasn't, wouldn't have gone to this meeting under these circumstances if he didn't think he was going to solve all of his problems. Did Chucky know about the meeting? He says he did not know about the meeting, but he, he I don't think he did know about the meeting. He had known, and he talked. We talked about this. He talks about this in the book. He had known about the prior meetings. Right. He had known about that. That with Chucky, to, to back up a second, he had spent many years after Hoffa got out of jail. Out, Hoffa basically lived at his cottage, a small little college cottage on a lake uh, outside of Detroit. And Chucky had spent years with Hoffa out there after the disappearance, and he knew that he was witnessing Hoffa kind of losing his mind, making all these threats. It was freaking Chucky out. And he was he knew about the Jackaloni's efforts and others' efforts to get him to quiet down. He knew about all that stuff, but he did not know about the Wednesday okay, meeting. But in your telling, Jackalone never shows up. Jacqueline does not show up. Hoffa gets there at 2 o'clock. The last contact he has is he, he calls this guy named Louis Lintow at 3.30, saying, you know, Jacqueline didn't show up. I'm going home. That's the last piece of evidence we have about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. After that, there's literally not a single piece of evidence about what happened to him. He disappeared. And All right, so tell us why Chucky becomes the primary suspect, and then tell us what you think happened. So Chucky becomes – there were very good reasons why he became the primary suspect. He, he and Hoffa had had a breach the Thanksgiving before, so they hadn't, they'd only spoken once in seven or eight months. But that breach had to do with, with your my mother. mom. It did. But they were, they were having difficulties. They were going through the worst period of their, of their basically 35-year relationship then. But it was also a time when my mom, who had known Chucky, and Chucky had a crush on her a decade earlier – and she basically reached out to him at that time, just after Chucky had had this terrible episode with Hoffa over Thanksgiving. And basically, Chucky falls in love with my mom and decides, this is my out. I'm in this terrible situation between the mob and Hoffa. None of it's good for me. I want to be, get out of here. And so my mom comes back into his life, and he basically parachutes out of a whole Hoffa, Jackaloni, Detroit scene. going to take a job down in Florida. Yeah. So the plan was to get a job down in Florida, and this is where we were planning to move in the weeks before uh, – Hoffa disappeared. So Chucky, the reasons he was considered a suspect in the case, and there were good reasons, were he was, it would take too long to explain why, but he was driving a car in the suburbs in the general area where Hoffa disappeared. There are so many amazing circumstances that point to him. The very parking lot where Hoffa disappeared, Chucky was there the morning of the disappearance. That's where he typically got his ride to work. They didn't have a car because he was broke. He was also there the next morning for the same ride. He happened to be in that neighborhood driving a car by the leading, the other leading suspect, Anthony Giacalone. His son, Chucky, was driving a car in that neighborhood. It was thought at the time, I think I debunked this, but it was thought at the time that there was this unaccounted for amount of time where Chucky's whereabouts weren't known. It was speculated at the time that Chucky was one of the few people that Hoffa would have voluntarily gotten in the car with. There was 
supposedly blood in the back seat of the car. Chucky claimed he was delivering a frozen leaking salmon, which seems very fishy. But in fact, it was in fact it was a frozen salmon, and and there was no none of Hoffa's blood was in the car. But dogs at the time picked up Hoffa's scent in the car, and there was a hair found in the car that was later identified as being Hoffa's. For all those reasons, they and also James James Hoffa, Hoffa's son, hated Chucky and pointed the finger at him at the beginning. And so the FBI, for all these reasons, they'd had no other leads. They literally they had all this. They were they were being bombarded with information, informants, and speculation. But the only lead they really had was Chucky, and they came down on him very hard. And you eventually conclude that it wasn't. Chucky, that he was not there, that he was telling the truth about that, and then you spend years trying to help clear his name. I want to get to that, but before we do, you also reach some conclusions about what you think did happen. Well, the conclusions I reached about what did happen are based entirely on what I learned from talking to the current and former FBI officials who worked the case over decades and former assistant U.S. attorneys who worked the case over decades. And I was a bit of a journalist on this, and I was triangulating, this person tells me this, I've learned a little bit about your business, this person tells me this snippet of information, I bring it up with that person who tells me a little more, I kind of put it together. And I basically figured out that through informant information and electronic surveillance, starting in the 1990s, at about the same time when there were all sorts of reasons why the FBI came to believe that it wasn't Chucky, there were independent reasons why the circumstantial case against him fell apart. And at about the same time that that happened, they, through these two means, informants and electronic surveillance, gathered information. This is all I learned. That pointed to the person who picked Hoffa up was Vito Giacalone, who was Anthony's brother, someone Hoffa knew well, someone who had been going to these meetings with Hoffa about solving his problems. And the person that the government thinks did it, I didn't name him in the book, and I'm not going to name him. I noticed that. I'll I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And you tell me if you think it's a good idea. Was a low, at the time, a low level, basically lieutenant in the Detroit mob, who quickly rose to prominence and became a big shot in the Detroit mob after the disappearance. He was never linked to the disappearance until very late, until just a couple of years ago. I actually stumbled across, they actually interviewed him, I stumbled across his 302 back from 75, and it's a one paragraph, they never suspected him. But he's still alive. He died in January. He died. So why not name him? The reason I didn't name him is because, you tell me if this is a good idea or not, or if this is a, a persuasive. So one of the stories in the book was that Chucky was the person who was wrongly named right. based on what the FBI said was all this great information they had in secret. And he was tagged with that, and he's still tagged with it in the public mind, with what turned out to be a completely groundless charge that he was the person involved in killing Hoffa. And I just thought that after writing a book that basically damned the FBI for doing this to my stepfather, that it you're, you're shaking your head. You're, you're too wedded to consistency. Well, here, let me right? tell you, I just thought, I just thought yeah. that— I don't know the basis for their evidence. They seem well, that's very, what I was saying. What, what is very, the basis for thinking that this guy, unnamed guy— All they told me, all yeah. I was able to figure out was— They were very confident about it. It was the premise for the last dig in 2013, looking for Hoffa's remains. They're very confident about the information. I named Vito Giacalone because he's always been a suspect. That's not mm-hmm. news. My publisher wanted me to name the name, <laughs> but I just felt it wasn't right to do given my— 
what they did to Chucky for me to just put a name out there and say this is what they think, someone who hadn't been named before. I didn't think it was fair. What do you think? Uh, Would you have done that? I'd want to. Well, I'd want to know more about what the basis for thinking he was. But if he was a prominent mob guy who was associated with these characters, and if there was something you could say about what led the FBI to conclude that this was the guy, you have named. I I think I would have uh, leaned heavily towards uh, naming him. Even if you were writing a book, the premise of which (laughs) was that the FBI had committed this egregious, horrible error by ruining someone's life by naming him in confidence as the leading suspect when it turned out the evidence... Well, you know, this raises a... a, a Maybe a little bit of an uncomfortable question, but it must have been, must have occurred to you, which is that when you started this project, you didn't know where it was going to end. I didn't know. You may have concluded that Chucky was involved in, in Hoffa's disappearance. What, what, would would you, you what would you have done? That's an interesting question. Good question. I probably wouldn't have published the book. I mean, I set out to – the reason I – and I explained this in the book. The reason I started on this project was in part because I felt terrible about what I'd done to him for 20 years. I really was just horrible to him. And he had always loved me, and I had grown to love him. And I also, in the course of our conversations, just casual, I have not done any research, but just listening to him talk about it, I came to kind of believe him that he wasn't involved. So, But I, when I set out to write it, my goal was to basically give him a fairer shake than history had given him. I'm confident I could do that because he's been given a terrible shake by, by history. But I didn't know. And I wasn't sure for a while. Uh, I wasn't sure what the truth was. And I doubt seriously that I would have published a book if I concluded, certainly not while he was alive and probably never, if I concluded that he was the person who did it. Now, maybe that undermines my credibility. Well, also, but as an officer of the court, would that have been a dilemma for you? No. In terms of my legal obligations, no. I actually looked into that, and the answer is no. <laughs> I, I got a lot of legal advice for this book. All right. Yeah. Cu- a couple of other points I want to get to, uh, so many. First of all, just uh, as a, um, you know, what I all remember, always remember about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa is the widely held belief or uh, suspicion that he was buried at uh, the 50-yard line in Giants Stadium in the Meadowlands. I, maybe I missed it, but I don't see you addressing that in the book. What so was- I did. There were, I just have, in a throwaway paragraph near the end, I kind of list some of the many rumors about what happened to him. There were, what's one of the challenges? What was the basis for that one? Nothing. There was no No. basis. So here's the the basis was that one of the early suspects was a guy named, there was some New Jersey, there was a New Jersey Mm -hmm. angle. And early on, it was believed that he may have gone to New Jersey and been buried there. They thought he was buried in a pool from this low level mob guy out somewhere in New Jersey. The, the giant stadium thing was just something that appeared one day, like about a hundred other things, as a rumor that got repeated and repeated and repeated. Right, and it was too good a story <laughs> and uh, one of the, not yeah. to give up on. And yeah. one of the hardest things, one of the many difficult things about writing this book was, y'all have experienced this, I'm sure, when you're just faced with decades of misinformation accepted as truth, yeah. and you don't, it was very hard to tell what was true and not, and because there were so many pieces of information like that one, and yeah. really hundreds more that were just accepted conventional wisdom that turned out not to be true, but I never was able to pin down the basis for it. It just appeared at some point. I think we should get to some of the resistance that you faced in trying to track down the truth from people at high levels of the Justice Department recently. Um, Okay. Well, well, all right. Let let me set that up, and then we'll have Jack tell the story. So 
By the way, I mean, you, you talked about how Chucky has been wrong by history, multiple movies. Uh, there's Chucky O'Brien characters, some using his name, in which he is assumed to be presented as the um, as the key guy uh, who drove Jimmy Hoffa to his murder. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa Jr. continues to believe that to this day, believes that uh, Chucky is the guy. You conclude otherwise, and then you start working with some FBI agents to try to clear his name. You found one who says that if only Chucky would come for another FBI interview and take a lie detector test, we no longer believe he's a suspect. We'll write a letter saying that he's no longer a suspect in the murder. He does go for this interview. You're told the FBI agents believe him. And then the then U.S. attorney under President Obama in Detroit, Barbara McQuaid, who we see almost nightly on MSNBC as a legal commentator, reneges on the deal. So just let me just flesh out a few other things before sure. I tell you what happened. So this wasn't all my doing. It had turned out long before I showed up on the scene, I later discovered that the FBI had actually reached out to Chucky as early as the 1990s, about the time when they thought that he wasn't the person involved and they began to rethink the case, unbeknownst to the public. They had reached out to him to offer him a lot to take a lie detector test and then to clear his name. And he, for 20 years, had said no to this. And so when I come on the scene and write the book, I say, well, let me find out what happened. So I go to Detroit. To make a long story short, it wasn't just the FBI. It was the U.S. Attorney's Office also in Detroit that wanted, that invited him to come for an interview. And if he told the truth, and I've got this in writing, I talk about it in the book, if you told the truth, they pledged to give him a letter, basically exonerating him from the charge that they had let loose in the 1970s and that he's been tagged with ever since from involvement in the disappearance. They, would have, they were going to say that he wasn't a target or subject. Chucky, in frail health, shows up in Detroit. He spends four hours with the FBI in what were legally fraught circumstances. If he had told any lie at all, they could have prosecuted him for that. He told the truth for four hours. He left. We were told soon thereafter that they believed him. We were told that this letter, as they promised, was forthcoming. And then they started delaying. They told, they told us they made the decision that the U.S. attorney, who was Barbara McCade at the time, had made the decision. And they were just waiting for FBI sign-off, and they also said they were going to give us the letter, probably even if the FBI didn't sign off. What ensued was months and months and months of unexplained delay. They promised us they'd give us a quick answer, and they didn't. And then about nine months later, we finally got word that they weren't going to give him the letter. And I was not happy about this, so I was trying to figure out what happened. So I actually asked to speak to the U.S. attorney and the assistant U.S. attorney who had worked on the case. I went there. We had about a 10-minute meeting that was not a pleasant meeting for anyone in the meeting. And they basically acknowledged that they had promised him this letter and they didn't have any good excuse for not doing it, not giving it to him. And... They even, Barbara McQuaid even told me that the reason it had taken, I couldn't believe she told me this, the reason it had taken them so long to, to adjudicate this was that they really worried about the implications of going back on their word once they pledged to promise someone kind of exoneration in exchange for cooperation. Anyway, to make a long story Wait, short. That's a reason for giving you the That's letter. what they worried about. If this got out, that they made promises and then didn't follow through as promised, they worried about what the implications for their pledges going forward were. That's what she told me. 
That doesn't make any sense because that's exactly what happened. That's what happened, but that's why they delayed. So they did it. In yeah. other words, okay. that was, that was, oh, that's, that was, that was for the delay. That, that was the reason for the so delay. They were worried they, about that. Why didn't they give you the so letter? So they never told me, but the people I talked to, I mean, Barbara McCade never told what me. What did she say? And you said, why aren't you giving, giving us the letter? The only reason she said was that she still thought that there were loose ends and that she wasn't convinced. And she didn't, I don't even think she understood the case. I don't, I think there was no evidence in that meeting that she really understood the situation at all. Right. She just said, it's my decision. I've decided that there are still loose ends and I'm not going to do this. That's the end of the matter. She also said that the original FBI agent who had approached Chucky wasn't authorized to make the approach, which was rubbish. There, I've gotten mm-hmm. the documents that gave the authorization. So there was just no good excuse. And as I later learned um, from several people in the government, that the then uh, agent in charge in the FBI and the U.S. attorney, who were the political appointees, even though all the people who had worked the case for decades thought this was the truth, they didn't want to take the heat. They had just had, had the embarrassment of doing a big dig for Hoffa's remains, like the 14th one. They had found nothing. They were being made fun of. And what's in it for them to to admit basically error for 40 years that they, this person has been falsely charged? Why? So I, they just didn't want to take the heat. How did Chucky take it? So I was furious, more probably angrier than I've ever been in my life. He was – he wasn't surprised. He – he was clearly disappointed when I told him because I believed he was disappointed when I told him about the initial uh, when I told him because I had, I had told him what I thought they had told us they were going to give us the letter that he had passed. He basically when I finally told him that I'd spoken to McQuaid and it wasn't going to happen and I was so sorry and how angry and disappointed I was. And he said, those son of a bitches or those assholes or something like that. They've been screwing me for 50 years. I, I never thought they were going to give me that letter. That's what his reaction was. But he was hugely disappointed. He's been struggling with this and trying to clear his name and doesn't understand how, literally since 1975, and he was hugely disappointed. So, Jack, you gave Chucky the manuscript before the book was published. It's a, we've been talking about, a very human account. It's empathetic. But you also write about his criminality, and it's a warts warts and all account. How did he react to it? So I talked about his criminality. I talked about his less than stellar standing in the Teamsters Union. I disclosed some things that I knew he wasn't going to be happy about that he told me that may have gone across the line that he later regretted. So I was very worried about whether about publishing the book, and I wasn't had no plans to publish the book, actually, until he passed away for these reasons. But there's a movie coming out this fall that's going to have him yet again as the person driving Hoffa to his death, and he really wanted some attempt at exoneration out before the movie, so I decided I'm going to let him make the call. And I went to Florida for five days. I gave him the manuscript with all these things in it that I knew he wasn't going to like. And I said, you tell me. I've got to know by Friday. It was Monday. I said, I have to know by Friday whether we can publish this. And I saw him looking in, at the book during the week, but I didn't really see him reading it. He was kind of flipping through, and then he didn't seem to read it for a couple of days. Friday comes. We had, you know, we had talked about, are you reading it? Yes. Are you reading it? Yes. Friday comes, he hands me the manuscript. He asked me to take out three very, very small and inconsequential non-material things, which were surprising, early in the book, which is the only part I think he read. And then he said, he handed me the book with a very, very sad face, almost in tears, saying, I read every word, you wrote a great book, congratulations. It was clear he didn't read every word, and I didn't. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't think he wanted to know what I wrote. I don't think he wanted the responsibility for what I wrote. Maybe that was it. Maybe he wanted his name cleared no matter what. 
maybe he wanted me to be able to write the book I wanted. He was going to swallow his pride. I don't know why. But I do know now, he's now read the book, and he has been extremely generous in his reaction to the book. Mm -hmm. He loves it, Mm -hmm. warts and all. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Clydeman and I have read the book, Uh, maybe not every word, but a big chunk, and I think we concur in uh, Chucky's review. So, Jack Goldsmith, it's a great book, uh, a great read. We could go on for another hour or two, but thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here, Jack. Thank you. Thanks to Harvard Law Professor and former Justice Department official Jack Goldsmith for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.